you've got a Bible, we're jumping into the book of Philippians. We're going to go line by line and chapter by chapter through this book, a brand new series starting today. And so if you're brand new to Frontline, um, working through books of the Bible is a sort of our steady diet. It's the way we kind of do things around here. We love doing this. We, we, uh, we don't want to cherry pick parts of the Bible. We just believe God's word as we kind of systematically and thoughtfully go through it. We'll, we'll address all the various needs in our church. And so um, why Philippians? Here's why. Over the last several weeks and months, uh, since, since the first of the year, uh, we've been in some heavy-hitting, uh, hard-hitting sermons and series. Uh, we went through the book of Hosea, an Old Testament prophet that was all about warning us against our idolatry, warning us against our unfaithfulness to God and how the gospel speaks to that. But nonetheless, we are an unfaithful people being redeemed and reshaped as a faithful people. And in the last few weeks, we've been in the series called American Gods. That's been all about our false worship, our idols. And it, it, I mean, it's just like over and over since January, we've gone, man, I'm busted. Man, I'm busted. Next week, man, I'm really busted, you know? And so uh, uh, Philippians is going to be a nice change of pace for us. It's the only New Testament book where there's not a correction. There's not a rebuke. It's just a big encouragement as to here's what a healthy church looks like. The major theme of the book is joy in Jesus. So from where we've been, right, on a call away from unfaithfulness, a call away from false worship, now this is sort of the positive example. We know what not to do over the last few months. And now here's an example of, here, here's where Jesus is actually shaping us. Here's where he's calling us in a healthy, maturing church. So that's the book of Philippians. Uh, today we're gonna look at verses one through 11. And I'll read them now to start our time together, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in from there. So if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Philippians 1, 1 through 11, the voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness and how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. This is the word of God to us. Let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the songs we've got to sing. Thank you for the prayers we've been able to pray. Um, thank you for the church now that we get to be a part of and hearing from you through your word. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you'd make sense of this. I pray that you would hold up our minds. I pray that you would steer us toward everything God would want us to hear. And I pray you'd give us a lot of affection for your son, Jesus, a lot of hope in him. He's worth it. Jesus, you're worth it. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the things I love about our church, I've been in my role as downtown lead for six months. One of the things I love about our church is I'm getting to know many of you are the various kinds of people that are present in, our, in this room, various kinds of people that are present in our church. 
there are a variety of stories. We have a wide range of stories of the way that God has rescued many of us, the way he has saved us, the way he has brought us to this church. Some of the stories that I know of, no names, but just just the stories uh, where you have found a place of home here as a follower of Jesus because there's been some in our church that have left other religions. Jesus has saved them, blindsided them, shown them himself to be the one true God, left other religions, and now they find themselves a follower of Jesus present in our church. Stories of backgrounds of addiction and a hard life, backstories of mistreatment and marginalization, Jesus showing you a home here, Jesus showing you you're worth it here, Jesus showing you have dignity and value because of all that he's done and how he's made you. Stories of a background and a upbringing of cold religion and now God's softened your heart toward love for Jesus. Stories of those who have been in the church all their life and just had a vibrant, full faith. Hey, we're all over the map in this room and it's what makes it so beautiful. I love how, how, how various we are and how, how different we are in all of the ways that God has surprised us and shown up. And because of that, uh, one of the things I find fascinating is that because of our backgrounds, we all have viewed church historically in different ways, right? So for some of you that grew up in church and church has kind of been the only thing that you've ever known, you were the kind of person that as soon as you were born, uh, just days after bringing you home from the hospital, parents had you in church. So you've been in church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And if that's you, you know you've had more cheap pizza and more spaghetti dinners than you ever wanted to have in your whole life, right? Because that's just kind of what they do. It's like, oh, I don't know a lot of people here. Uh, cheap Italian food, that works. Uh, carb load. And um, that, that's you. And so if you had that experience, maybe you either loved it or you go to resent church thinking, I just want better food. I just want better food, you know? And uh, so there's, there's some stories like that. There's other stories where you grew up hating church. You just, you hated Christianity altogether. You thought that's the place where the narrow-minded people hang out, the nerdy people hang out. They have no idea about culture or real life. They just kind of bubble themselves off. And you hated church. You hated Christians. There's others of you that you grew up sort of indifferent about it. You didn't think about it. You didn't care about it. You just sort of left it all to itself. And we're going to happily coexist, right? There's others of you that, uh, that you grew up just really distant from the church. You loved Jesus, but not the church because you'd seen people get hurt in the church. You'd seen or heard stories of other people getting hurt and you just want to want to stay away from church people. I'll take their Jesus, but not them, right? And so there's, there's a variety of stories. I don't know my own story. Church was a little bit different for me growing up. It was a place of punishment. And here's what I mean. My family, we didn't grow up going to church on like the traditional moments of like Christmas or Easter or regular at all. Uh, if we went to church, it was because I was in trouble. I had done something wrong or there was financial stress at the house. And that's how we went to church. So church was kind of a place of punishment. There's one memory in particular growing up where I was in middle school and I wanted to stay up late on a Saturday night and watch some things that my mom had said I wasn't supposed to watch and just wait, wait till everyone else went to bed and go back in the living room and, and watch what I wanted to watch on TV. Well, somewhere along the middle of the night, I had fallen asleep and my mom woke up and she saw the TV was on the living room. So she comes in there to see me passed out on the couch with stuff I shouldn't be watching on the TV. And she screams at the top of her lungs. I wake up totally freaked out. Like I must be in some alternate reality. Where am I? And my mom is just wearing me out. I mean, she's just getting onto me. She's ripping into me. She's laying into me. And she says, hey, tomorrow you better go to bed and get some sleep because we're going to church and Sunday school. And it was like, when she threw that line, I was like, oh my gosh, the extra hour of church, you know? Like, oh, this is gonna be terrible. I'm in big trouble. One more hour of church, you know? And so church was a place of punishment for me growing up until Jesus changed my life. And I saw, hey, this is actually a happy place, you know? There's actually good things going on here. And so wherever you are, all across the map, this is who we are. This is the church. This has everything to do with Jesus. 
The church has everything to do with Jesus. We are a people who are collectively busted up. We're a people who are collectively banged up and we have no business being loved by God, but by his severe grace, he has sought us. He has tracked us down. He has bought us. He has built us up and now he's binded us together across all of our different backgrounds and he now calls us a family. Like that's, that's the church. That's who we are. This is our story, but this is also the story of every church in every place who names Jesus as Lord. This is also the story of the church at Philippi. And so as we open up the book of Philippians, we're looking at what it looks like to be the church that Jesus is shaping us to be. So just a little context on the book of Philippians and the city in particular of Philippi. Philippi was a a booming metropolis uh, in, in in the Roman province of Greece. It was a booming metropolis. It was a port city off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so because of its size, because of its location, it was a driving force economically in the first century. It was a driving force in terms of shaping culture. It was a very secular city. It was a Roman colony where the worship of Caesar was, was alive and well. It was very hostile to Christianity. And so this is the first city that Paul went to on his missionary journeys. He took off from Jerusalem. He had been sort of affirmed by the church to be a missionary to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. So he took off from Jerusalem and the first place he landed was Philippi. He loved this church. He walked right into the middle of it. God used him to start a church in the midst of some crazy circumstances that we'll talk about today. And he loved this church. Look at verse eight. It says how much he loves them. It says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you, how I care for you, how deeply I think about you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loved this church. This church would go on to to fund many of his missionary journeys as he would travel all around the the ancient world in the the first century. They would fund many of these journeys. He was fully supported by the church at Philippi. So they were a generous church. He loved them deeply. And so as best as we can tell, when Paul writes this letter, This was about 10 to 15 years later from his first planting this church. And so where he writes this letter is in the middle of a Roman prison cell. And he's writing back to them about things that are going on in his own life, but then also just to encourage them in the faith faith that they're carrying out there in this very secular, very irreligious city of Philippi. So that's the context. And so with the backdrop of all of that, here's two things I want us to see this morning as we launch into Philippians. Number one, who is in this church? Like who's he writing to? So he's writing to the Philippian church, but who are they? That's the first thing I want us to see. And the second thing I want us to see is the promise that Jesus has for this church and for ours. So who are they and what's the promise that Jesus has for them? So look back at verse one, we'll look at who these Philippians are. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. So you see who he's writing to, right? It says to all the saints. He's writing to the Christians there in Philippi. Now I mentioned that because you're thinking that's a pretty obvious reality. Why do you pull that out? Well, because that's not a nameless group of people. This is a group of people. We actually know who they are. We know who Paul's writing to. We know who he was thinking about when he wrote this letter. He knew these people personally Because Acts chapter 16, back in the book of Acts, we actually get the story of how this whole church was planted. We get the backstory on on what happened when when Paul arrived in Philippi. And so I'd encourage you this week as we study this book, go back and read Acts 16. It's the backstory in all of this. But just to kind of give you the cliff notes, here's how it went down. Paul leaves Jerusalem. He sails to Philippi. 
he gets off the boat, he and his little comrades, uh, Timothy and Silas, these young guys, young ministers, and uh, they're there to plant a church. The first thing they would always do was look for a synagogue. They would go to the Jewish community first, preach the gospel. This city was so irreligious, there was no synagogue. And so it says they went down by the riverside, probably just taking a walk one day, and they stumble upon a group of women, a group of Jewish women who were in a prayer gathering, right? It was a place of prayer. So it's like they walk up on like a Bethmore Bible study, right? You follow me with here? So they walk up and they sit down, these three guys, and they just start meeting these ladies and they start sharing the gospel. And so it says one of the ladies in the prayer gathering, her name was Lydia. She was from Thyatira. So they're in Philippi. Thyatira was in the Middle East. It was another major city in the Middle East. She was there on business because she was a seller of purple goods. Translation, she was a fashion designer. She was in the fashion industry. She was a wealthy fashion designer. So she was there on business with her, with her business associates. She hears the gospel that day at the prayer gathering, and then she believes on Jesus. She converts her and her whole business associates. So they get baptized. These are the first Christian converts in Philippi, right? So Paul's hanging out with these ladies. He's gonna go back to their prayer gathering a couple of days later. But when he's going a couple of days from then, on his way there, he starts getting heckled by a couple of guys who had this slave girl, teenage girl, who was possessed by a demon. And so they, they would pimp her out by telling uh, fortune telling, right? They would say, because of her demon possession, she could tell fortunes. It was like a carnival show they had. They would travel around and do this. They were being heckled and tormented and harassed by this girl. And so Paul, it says, I love in Acts 16, it says, he got annoyed by all of this. That's the language it says. He got annoyed by this. So he turns around to the girl and in the name of Jesus, he casts out the demon. She gets healed. She gets saved by Jesus. Her two pimps get frustrated by this because now their source of money has been compromised. So they attack Paul, Silas, and Timothy and they beat him up and they have him thrown into a Roman prison for preaching the gospel against the wish of Caesar, right? So then the jailer is told, hey, keep these guys safe. Okay, so pause there. We now have two converts in the city of Philippi, a wealthy fashionista and an ex-demoniac, right? These are the two converts in Philippi. Now Paul is in prison with his friend Silas. Uh, the guard was told to keep them safe. He does more than that. He throws them in the inner cell, which meant torment, right? He was there to torture them. And so he hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He was an ex-Roman soldier. He throws him in the inner cell to torture these guys. Amidst being tortured, Paul and Silas, maybe you know the story, they start singing hymns. They're being tortured and they start singing worship songs. So the jailer gets totally freaked out by all of this. And then an earthquake happens and it shakes the jail cell. And all the prisoners are released because they, they run away uh, because their, their shackles have been loosed. And so they run off and they run into freedom. All the prisoners are running across Philippi. So the jailer, horrified by his, uh, under his oversight, all the prisoners let, being let loose, he now threatens to commit suicide. Paul and Silas could have left because their shackles had been let loose. But instead of leaving with other prisoners, they went and checked on the jailer who was torturing them and convinced him to not commit suicide. And so by their own example of singing songs in the midst of torture and then caring for their own torturer, he goes, what must I do to be saved? He, by their own Christian example, he goes, his heart was softened toward God. What must I do to be saved? So then he believes the gospel. He and his whole household, Acts 16 says. And so this is now the church at Philippi. You have a wealthy fashionista. You have an ex-demoniac slave girl. And you have a blue-collar jailer, ex-Roman soldier, torturer, and his whole family. There's the church. 
It was a crazy trip to Philippi, right? <laughs> a real crazy trip. Now, if you're gonna start a church in a major city, we're gonna, we're gonna parachute in. This is a booming city, a booming metropolis, shaping culture. You're thinking about who's my cocktail of people to really spread the gospel in this city. I don't think you're thinking about this group of people. Let me just throw together a wealthy businesswoman, an ex-GI and an ex-demoniac. There it is. You wouldn't put them together. But that's in God's mind. That was in God's mind. This is the redeeming power of Jesus, the uniting work of the Spirit. This group of people would have never otherwise even had a thought to associate with one another. They would never even, they, they, their paths would have never crossed had it not been for Jesus, right? The, the, the fashion woman, she's hanging out with the wealthy. The demoniac is hanging out with her, with her masters. And, and the ex-GI is hanging out with other guys just like him in the blue collar industry. That, that's how it's gonna work. And then Jesus shows up brings them together, calls them a family. They had nothing in common racially. They had nothing in common economically. They had nothing in common in terms of cultural values. They would have had some awkward dinners together. Very, very awkward. And now they're called a family. And so this is their story. But listen, this is our story too. This is also our story in this room. Look, look around you for a second. Never otherwise except for the Lordship of Jesus and the power of the resurrection, could we get this same group of people together? Could we get all of us together in the same room and have the understanding that we're family? If it's not for Jesus, what we're doing right now is not possible. We might be together in other rooms, in other moments, other clubs, thunder games, whatever, but we wouldn't see ourselves as family. But all of a sudden, Jesus does this. Different backgrounds, different races, different histories, and now we're here together as a one people? What kind of God is this? So the whole point that the Philippian church is, is being signaled to us about is this reality that the gospel has no types. And here's what I mean. There's no type of person that the gospel is more likely to work for. There's no type of person that the gospel is more likely to attract. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus, he plays no favorites. There's no racial favorites right? God doesn't favor one race over another. You think about who started this church. It was a Middle Eastern woman. It was a European man and his family. And then it was a slave girl. Who knows where she's from? She could have been from from anywhere. It plays no racial favorites. It plays no favorites to the rich, plays no favorites to the poor. It plays no favorites to certain personalities over others. It plays no favorites uh, to those who have morally cleaned up lives. And it plays no favorites to those who have immoral, messy lives. The gospel is just pursuing and chasing everybody down because God's love is that ferocious, right? That's all of our story. And so you think about what's going on in this room. Literally, it's crazy that Jesus brings us together. And this is why some of you go to community group for the first time and you're going, this is really awkward. Yeah, it's awkward. You don't know one another, but you're brother and sister. So you're supposed to like one another, but you're going, we have so much different stories. Welcome to the family of God. He's trying to make us into a people that goes, we have a common father with common songs, common prayers, a common spirit living inside of us with a common older brother who paid for all of our sins. We're family. This is their story, but this is also our story. It's a beautiful story. But now look at, so how do we know who's in the church? This busted up group of people. Look at the promise he gives the church. The second thing this morning, and then we'll call it a day. The second thing is in verse six. It says this, I'm sure of this, 
that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So did you hear what he just said? Who started the good work in you? Jesus did, right? So no one in this room, no one in this room, no one at the church of Philippi, we hear their story, they're busted just like us. No one started this good work. None of you earned God's love. None of you mustered up saving faith. None of you did uh, put together the perfect cocktail of spirituality to get God to save you. None of you did that. You are saved. I am saved. None of us have any business being loved by God, but we are saved 100% top to bottom because of the work of Jesus. He began the good work. He began the good work. Now we know that. That's all we've been talking about this morning, right? But look at the back end of the promise because this is, the, this is where all the power comes. He began the good work and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Everyone listen to this. Those who look to Jesus are secure in Jesus. Now hang with me. This means God will never leave you. God will never lose you. God will never drop you off. There's never a moment where God will even contemplate ejecting on you. There's never a moment where God's gonna throw up his arms and go, this person's too hard to work with, I'm out. He started the good work and he will bring it to completion. Now, as I say that this morning, there's some of you go, I've been in church for a while. I've heard that before. Get onto the stuff that I don't know about. But hang with me. Every believer needs to hear this because at different points in your life, there are gonna be moments where it feels like what's being promised here, that God's gonna finish it, that God's gonna complete you. There are moments in your life where it feels like this is a million miles away. Where is God, right? Now step back a second and just think about who this promise was originally written to. The businesswoman, the demoniac, the torturer. These were people just like us. These were people just like us. You don't think there were moments in the early days of that church when the slave girl looked over at Lydia, the businesswoman, and she thought to herself, do I even really belong here? What's my place in this church? I don't belong sitting next to a woman like that. The nightmares that, the, that she probably had because of her past, the things that she had been a part of, the things that she had seen, the things that she had experienced. She had nightmares that she had to fight off and shame that she felt because of what she was a part of before. Now she's sitting next to these people. She probably thought, oh, of course. Of course, God works for Lydia. Her life is put together. She's well-organized. She's wealthy. She's cleaned up. Of course, God works for her, not for me, right? At some point, she probably doubted that. Think about the jailer. You don't think there weren't moments where he had shame because of all the people he tortured and oppressed? He had shame because of his own background, and he would then look over at Lydia and feel resentment for a woman who has this really easy life selling purple clothes when he's worked his whole life as a soldier, just a blue collar guy, just trying to make ends meet for the Roman empire. You don't think there were moments that Lydia looked at both the jailer and the slave girl with some jealousy thinking, man, my life, my life hasn't experienced near the dramatic transformation that their life had. They were radically changed. I, I just feel like I believe in Jesus. That's the only thing different for me. And they have all these doubts about their place in Jesus. Sure, he began the good work, but, but now it's on me to finish it off. Now it's on me to get over my shame. Now it's on me to just clean my life up, slave girl. Now it's on me just to really kind of grud it through to have radical change in my life. Oh man, that's not how it works. 
this promise applies to every one of them as much as it applies to every one of us. Listen, Paul knew exactly who he was writing to when he wrote this down. He knew exactly who he was writing to. He knew all their backstories. He knew where they came from and he applies this promise to them without distinction. This promise isn't any more true for the, for the wealthy businesswoman than it is true for the slave girl. It's not any more true for the jailer torturer than it is for you and me, wherever we find ourselves. He started the good work and he's gonna complete it. And now I say this in the room because there are moments where maybe it's through doubt or fear, or anxiety, or shame, or guilt, or even a sermon like last week on sexuality, and we feel busted and exposed, where it feels like we're trying to chase down the life God's called us to, but it feels like we're left all alone, and he's not giving us any help. That's where Philippians 1.6 comes in. He started it. You're here, you love Jesus, you're convicted, you're striving, you're pursuing, you're persevering, not because you created all of this, because he did. And the reason you're here believing today is because he's holding it together. It's not Jesus starts it and then you've got to have your best effort to finish it. No, 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 no. Jesus starts it, he holds you together and he finishes it. And look at what Paul says on the, on the power of this promise at the beginning of verse six. He says, I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work will finish it. He wrote this in a Roman prison cell under persecution for preaching the gospel. Like if I'm in a Roman prison cell, if I'm in any prison cell, regardless if it's in Rome or here, and I'm there under persecution for preaching the gospel, I'm not really sure of a whole lot of stuff at that point. I'm pretty confused, quite frankly. But he writes with such rock solid confidence, knowing exactly who he's writing to, knowing exactly where he is, knowing exactly the God he's writing about, that even in the midst of all his stuff and their stuff, in the midst of all the things swirling about, he says, I am rock solid confident that the resurrected king who started this whole mess will finish it. He'll do it. God sent his son, spilled out his blood to start this whole thing. He's not gonna bail now. Like he's not gonna bail now. He knew exactly the renovation project he was getting himself into when he bought the house. Like he saw every bit of you, every bit of me. God has always been eyes wide open. There's never a part of you that will ever be revealed to him. And he says, oh, what about that crack in the foundation? Like he's never gonna think that about you. He's been eyes wide open and he's chosen to move in without regret. Without regret. He started it. He spilled his son's blood to purchase it. He will finish it. God gets what God wants and God wants us. He sent his son to purchase the whole thing. God finishes what he starts. He's faithful to the end. This is what's going on in Philippians. Now there's one more thing I want us to see before we end today. And it's difficult to see because we don't often see it on first reading. Look back at verse six carefully. It says, I am sure of this that he who began the good work in who? In you, right? We'll bring it to completion. Now, when we often read this verse, we think about it hyper-individualized, hyper-personalized. We think only about ourself and what God's doing with us, right? You think about it just in terms of you. But when Paul writes this, he writes this with a plural you. He writes this to the church. So yes, it is personalized. Yes, it does involve you but it also is bigger than you and it involves all of us, which means this. 
Jesus hasn't gone to such great lengths to bring together such a diverse group of people just to you walk this out by yourself, right? He didn't go to such great lengths to bring together a jailer and a demoniac and a wealthy businesswoman from the Middle East just for them to go, I don't know, I'm gonna go Lone Ranger on this whole thing. No, he brought them all together to go, you need her story, you need her story, and you need his story, and you need the God's work involved in all of you if you're gonna complete this whole thing. It's God's faithfulness revealed in all those stories that actually spurs on your faith to more. And the same is true in this room. How often have you walked with Jesus and your faith starts to wane? Your belief starts to get questioned and drop out. And your energy to follow Jesus starts to get a little bit muddy when you just take it on a mentality of, man, I'm just gonna figure this out myself. I'm just gonna keep my faith to myself. I'll have friends, maybe even Christian friends, but we won't talk about Jesus at all. We'll just kind of just do our own thing and just associate with one another. I'll figure out Jesus by myself. I'll attend church, but I don't need deep, deep faith-related friendships with people. How often has your faith waned when you've taken on that mentality? And here's the reason why. God brings together a diversity of expressions of his faithfulness in all of us in order to spur all of us on because whatever faithfulness you've received from God now and today, you're gonna need more of that later. It's probably in someone else's story that you actually see, oh, he's been faithful there too. No reason to doubt him, right? And so here's what I'm saying in my own life. I need my community group so bad. We meet every Tuesday night and I need him so bad. I need him to remind me of how destructive my sin is. I need him to remind me of how precious Jesus is. I need him to remind me how faithful God is. The reason I believe Philippians 1, 6 today, I can preach it like this. The reason I believe it, the reason I believe the Bible in general is because over and over and over and over and over again, my community group has helped me see that Jesus really is worth it. They've helped me see he really does forgive me. They've helped me see my shame really is gone. He's paid for it. I don't get that by myself. I get internal arguments, internal conversation by myself. I fight shame by myself. No, 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 no. In the context of God's faithful community, you see just exactly what he's done. You need each other. You need the stories represented in this room to make it. So he says, I'm giving this promise to you, plural. I started the good work in you and I'll bring it to completion. I wanna end by reading verses nine through 11. Paul has this prayer of what he believes will be accomplished when we do this together. It says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, that your love, your collective love, you together may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you together would have begin to approve as you learn together what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ, that you together would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and to the praise of God. So God's made this promise. He knows who he's made it to. As we open Philippians, God's gonna stretch us. God's gonna shape us as a church. And here's what I want us to end today hearing. It really is true. There's your individual faith, but then there's us together in this room. God has began a good work in Frontline. God has begun a good work in you, in us, in me, in you. He's began a good work in us. And I need you to hear this because some days it doesn't feel true, but it is true. He's gonna finish it. He's gonna finish it. Wherever you are today, 
wherever you feel lost today, wherever you feel foggy today, he's going to get you home. He's going to get you home. The journey you're on right now is just figuring out how he's going to do it. (laughs) That's the crazy part, right? Like, you know the end of the story. He's going to complete it. He talks about it in past tense as though it's already a reality. We're just now living in the in-between to figure out, so how are you going to do it, God? You started me here. I'm here with you. I'm listening. Now finish me off. Get me home. He's going to do it. 